Do you have the empty reed case blues? Well, luckily for you, Singin' Dog Double Reeds is an online double reed shop and one of the largest suppliers of high-quality and affordable professional and student reeds for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit us at www.singindog.com to see all of our products and fill up that reed case. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Double or Nothing Reeds. You know them. They're the company that's dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reeds to discriminating double reed players of all ages and abilities. And good news. Double or Nothing Reeds has recently expanded to sell double reed tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. Better yet, as authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. Additionally, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. And if you're looking for private oboe lessons and can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit their website, doubleornothingreads.com, for good quality and affordable read-making supplies and resources, lessons, instruments, and much more. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. It is the last episode of 2017. You know what that means. This semester is almost over. Well, is it over for you already? It's totally over for me. My grades are in. Oh, my gosh. I just have some gigs left. I'm so jealous. It's the first week of finals week here, and I feel like a little salmon swimming upstream. (laughs) (laughs) Swim, salmon, swim. (laughs) How was your year, Jackie? How was your semester? How was your year? It was overall good. Before we started recording, we were kind of talking about our New Year's resolutions and reflecting on how well we hit them or didn't. And I think the consensus is that overall we were more mindful about our practice and reads and all that stuff, even if we didn't hit kind of specific goals. So I thought it was a good year, and I thought the podcast did a nice job of, you know, keeping us on track. We have all these awesome professionals telling us, how they do what they do twice a month. It's hard for that to not be a big shot in the arm. Mm-hmm. What about you? Yeah, same. I mean, I feel like I've gotten a lot more focused in and uh, present in what I'm doing. And um, that's helped really a lot with, you know, both like general anxiety and performance anxiety. It's like, okay, well, you're just doing what you're doing right now. And it's like, oh, all right, I can do that. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, and got winter break coming up, and I am going to do all of the traveling that I normally do over winter break. Which is? I'm going to go see Becky's family and my family, and we do Becky's family for Christmas and my family for New Year's. We usually try to do Christmas with her family and Hanukkah with my family because I am a non-Christmas celebrant, but um, Hanukkah's early, right? Yeah, it's early this year. Oh, and I get to meet my brand new niece. Awesome. Welcome to the world, Rosie. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. What are you doing? Well, first... You guys drive that, right? You drive, drive from Mississippi so to Michigan. 
Let me clarify. Okay, so we're dry. So first of all, Becky is driving because I am the world's most nervous driver on the highway, and so she gets car sick when I drive. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was, like, I've, in the past, I had an incident uh, a few years ago when I got run off the road by a, a semi oh <laughs> on the gosh. highway. I know, it was terrifying. So I'm, like, still traumatized. <laughs> and so every time I have to pass one of those big trucks, I will, like, wait, 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 wait. Go, 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 go. Pedal <laughs> <Head of> the metal. <laughs> so she drives. Uh, we drop off the cat in North Carolina to my parents, and then we go to Michigan to see her parents for Christmas, and then we drive back to my parents, spend some time with them, and then we drive back to Mississippi. So it is like a yearly cross-country road trip. <laughs> Holy moly. We do not travel every single year. There are definitely times that we go, we're not going anywhere, we're taking a break. Um, but this year we're going to Chris's family in Colorado um, and spending a few days with them. We'll also drive, but it's not quite the marathon of you <laughs> that you guys have to do. And uh, we're bringing the dog, so people are his family's all more excited to see Buddy than they are to see us, you know. Um, but I, as I've talked about, I feel almost nonstop. I'm still preparing the Burial Sequenza. It happens at the beginning of February. So December and January, if it's the equivalent of a musical marathon, they're kind of my, now I'm starting to do long uh, practice runs. Mm -hmm. And I find that I cannot take a day off. It's just so taxing. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm bringing the bassoon with me, which is fine. Um, but of course, there's the altitude there. And so I was like, oh, I actually am like a marathon perfect. runner, you know, mm -hmm. when they go and train in the high altitudes. And so it's they can perfect. <laughs> it's like last year when we played for the College uh, Music Society National Conference in Santa Fe it was a week before I played the Strauss Concerto. Yeah. I was like, I'm altitude training. <laughs> <laughs> Takes on a new like level of seriousness. Like, yes. yeah, yeah. I trained for my barrio in high altitude environments. Mm -hmm. That's how serious I am. <laughs> Good luck making reads, by the way. Ugh, don't even get me started. I usually just bring like a huge pile and try and try and try until I get something that plays. And mm -hmm. then, because I, you know, we've been married for 11 years now. I've had to play the bassoon in Colorado quite a few times. And mm -hmm. it's usually just hope and prayer and, you know, bring lots of options and whatnot. But it's only a couple of days, so... Yeah, we'll, you'll be fine. We'll make it work. <laughs> Are you hoping to get, you know, be super productive over break? Yeah, I'm going to start thinking more deeply about, like, my more long-term vision for my career, you mm -hmm. know? Like, I, I think that that could be improved, you know, to just to just be able to be very clear about, who I am and what I do and make that a cohesive vision, first of all, and then direct my creative activities to reflect that vision. Oh, no, definitely. I was actually talking to one of my colleagues in marketing, and maybe our listeners had heard of this, but it's totally new to me. They do something called SWOT analysis, and it's um, S-W-O-T, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And so for in marketing, obviously, it's a client. Um, but I thought how applicable that is to a career or an ensemble or a studio. 
just taking a second to analyze what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses, what are the opportunities I want to pursue, and the, I don't know if threats is really a, <laughs> as applicable in music it's as it's not in a Disney very shine theory term. <laughs> uh, maybe how, like how could my how are my weaknesses potentially going to hold me back, and how can I you know counteract that or whatnot? But so it's more of a swah. Yeah, I like that. Let's so swo. we encourage you all to do a swow analysis. <laughs> Uh, but yeah same I have some uh, ideas that have kind of been brewing in my head that have been someday ideas you know like oh someday I think it would be cool to do blah blah and then I never actually make plans to do that thing Um, like when we were talking to Dan Schwartz for his Mavericks episode I have this idea for a composition that I've always mm-hmm. wanted to do that's kind of outside of my comfort zone because I've never composed anything. And he was like, you should do it. He didn't say you should do it. He said you have to do it. It was a directive. Yeah. <laughs> and I've, that's been one of my like someday ideas. And so I decided 2018, I'm, I'm getting some of those things done or I, I'm making actual plans mm-hmm. to get them accomplished and put myself out there a little bit more, pursue some of those fun ideas. I love that. Hey, Oboists, have you checked out MKL Reads lately? MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reads where you can try reads from various makers and then select the one that is best for you. How cool is that? Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code double space read space dish, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Are you tired of playing arrangements by people who have no idea how to write for the oboe or the bassoon? JDW Sheet Music is an online store that specializes in original chamber music pieces for wind instruments. The website offers a wide variety of music transcriptions of composers like Debussy, Bach, Piazzolla, and Rachmaninoff. Owner and arranger Jessica Wilkins has produced over 60 chamber music arrangements featuring oboe and bassoon. Jessica's works have been performed at colleges across the country as well as at the 2015 IDRS conference in Tokyo, Japan. For access to the entire JDW Sheet Music catalog, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. We are so excited to welcome to Double Read Dish, Alan Vogel, former principal oboe of the L.A. Chamber Orchestra. Welcome, Alan. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Can we start off by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about your educational journey and um, your professional uh, experience in life? Well, how long do you want me to go on? (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Well, let's see. As far as education is concerned, I grew up in New York City in the Bronx, and so I went to PS70 and PS95 through eighth grade. And then when it came to choosing a high school, going to high school, I was very lucky to get into the High School of Music and Art in New York. And I used to have to take a train down to Manhattan every day, and um, it was an incredible school. And I had many wonderful teachers. And this is before I was an oboe player. I was just, I got in as a piano, a pianist. Not that I've ever been that good at it. And then you had to choose an instrument or voice. 
And so they said instrument or voice, and this is long before I was really attracted to the oboe, not that long, but I said voice because someone went by with a tuba, and I didn't want to have to do play that. So I was a voice major, but then I saw, I heard Swan Lake on the radio. I just fell in love with the oboe. Uh, and my brother, however, was a jazz musician and was fighting with my parents about this and that. So I was always saying, well, being a musician maybe isn't the most respectable thing. Or maybe being a kind of a well-adjusted second son, I was trying to think of something else to do. And also, being a late starter, I finally started over at 15. And um, so I went to college as an English major. I went to Harvard of all places because I was, you know, trying to always work hard at whatever I did. And I went through school as an English major, but practicing a lot the whole time, even though I was thinking, oh, I'm not going to be a musician like my brother. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think when it get to, got to be, and I was studying, uh, I should say, my te- my oboe teachers. I should have to mention them. In my high school, oboe teachers were Anton Maley. Yeah, and uh, who was the, was eventually the second oboist. No, he was the second oboist of Robert Bloom, who was my last teacher. So Mr. Maley. And then uh, when I was in high school, there was a great oboist named Basil Reeve, who I just spoke to yesterday, as a matter of fact, coincidentally. And I started studying with his teacher, Joseph Marks, who, and that was incredible, too. And then when I went away to college, I didn't quite know uh, what to do, and, and uh, uh, I started studying with Jean de Vergy, who was second oboe in the Boston Symphony, and we did um, just etudes and and scales for the real French, not sound, but the kind of French, just playing etudes and scales. And then when he retired in my senior year, that was a very pivotal year as I look back, because number one, I started studying with Fernand Gillet. And it was a completely different experience because he was, uh, you know, just a genius in a way. He was 83. He lived, he lived in 97. And so I, I started studying with him, and that was a big sort of change, just studying with someone like that. And then also I just happened, there was a concerto competition, and and I, I tied this great musician for first prize. So at, at that point I thought, oh, my God, maybe I should be a musician. And then I was lucky to get uh, Fulbright off the waiting list and got to go to Germany and study with Lothar Koch, who was principal of the Berlin Philharmonic. And he was my, had been my idol. His sound quality and just something about him. He was a big influence in general on European oboe playing, particularly when you hear any English oboe playing or he was just a big influence. He had unique quality. So anyway, then I was there and actually got to play the Berlin Philharmonic a little bit, which was an incredible experience, obviously. And then, uh, then the question of then I had a, it was during the war in Vietnam. So whereas I might have stayed in Berlin and tried to get a freelancing happening or whatever, there was no question that I had to go back and be in school. Otherwise I'd be in Vietnam. And uh, luckily, I got into the Yale School of Music and studying with with Robert Bloom. So even though I, 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 I didn't realize what I was getting into, how great he was. And so um, I studied with him for three years and uh, got a master's and a doctorate there. So even though I got was a late starter, I felt I, I feel I've had incredible uh, education. And I've been very happy to, you know, pass on a lot of these things I learned from all these Great teachers. So I wonder if that, uh, oh, then, then just in terms of professional life, just to finish this rant, um, 
when uh, I, I came, I got this job at the California Institute of the Arts, totally by lucky circumstance. I, had this, I was in a class with a teacher, Mel Powell, the great jazz pianist with Benny Goodman's accompanist, who, but he had become a very much a classical comp- composition teacher. But he had a cl- he had a class that I took, and he had a uh, had a friend who wrote, who was a student who wrote this great oboe piece I played for him, and so this incredible combination of lucky circumstances, I had a teaching job right out of school, and I've been at Cal Art ever since, actually from 1970 till present. Uh, I think three years later, uh, I had a chance to be in the LA Chamber Orchestra first, second, and then first. And I was in that job until year before last. So this is my actually my first non-professional year, second year out of the orchestra. But I had gigs for you know the first year out. So uh, I have I feel very fulfilled in this little story because I had a great career I, more than I ever thought I've had being in this great orchestra with the same colleagues for so many years. Uh, having, you know, being able to play solo, being able to, uh, even play some studios, being, being 10 years of the opera. I feel I've had a tremendous varied variety in my career. Not that I planned it that way, but just the way things sort of happen. I was just very lucky. And, uh, of course, I feel equally lucky just in the great students I've had because I've taught the whole time, studying at Cal Arts, but during the course of this 45 years stint, whatever it is. I've also I've been teaching at USC and the Colgan School. and So I have feel very fulfilled at this point. I feel like that Bach and Tadek have a genug where I say, okay, I, <laughs> I feel just very, very lucky. So that's it. <laughs> wow, I have to take a breath. I get all on, on one breath. <laughs> You're an oboist. We're used to that. <laughs> Um, I have so many questions. That's so sure. many great teachers. Um, what was it like to go from Fernand Gillet to Luther Koch to Robert Bloom? And like, what were the different mm-hmm. things that you learned from them? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I wrote a whole, I, for my master's thesis or my doctoral thesis, I wrote a, a whole big thing on that very subject, which was published in the Double Read Journal. And so I'm sure people could see it, I guess, somehow if they wanted to. It was called, uh, I think it was published in something like 72. And it was basically the title of it was My Thoughts of Studying with, with, uh, Lothar Koch, Fernand Gillet, Lothar Koch, and Robert Bloom. And, <laughs> and, I mean, that was what it was. And I also had three teachers, great teachers before them, as a matter of fact. But with them, I think the main thing is they were extremely different in terms of, uh, like, with Gillet, all we, we basically did just technique and refinement of hand position and etude, not that his uncle's etude, though, wasn't ready for them, but, you know, Fairling and Barrett, it's kind of basically all we did. And when I won this contest and we had to work on a piece, because I had to play it <laughs> as part of the prize, you know, he wasn't that thrilled that I was, wasn't just continuing with the Barrett book and stuff. <laughs> so, uh, but then, and we made him then going to Berlin, with Koch, he never played an etude in his life, probably, because he was an amazing, he was a totally different personality. He was much younger, instead of being 83, and Boado Gile lived in 87. He, he, he was more 33, and he'd been in the Berlin Philharmonic since he was 21. 
mm-hmm. and he was just a, a, a kind of incredible genius. He could play, you know, things like the Strauss Concerto, uh, and from memory, not only the oboe part, but the piano parts. And it was, it's, it's because of him that I played some concertos from memory, which I otherwise never would have done, because for me it was a tremendous amount of work. But, um, he sort of challenged me, he said, before you're 40, so you should play the Strauss Concerto by memory. So when I was 39 and a half, I did it, I think it was like that. <laughs> and, uh, and then after, and after that with Bloom, that was a very complete, because there I had a, I had to change my technique completely. Because, you know, the whole thing with German, German technique as it was in that time, it was kind of bitey embouchure and a whole completely different sound. And Mr. Bloom, um, you know, it was a kind of anathema. The whole way of playing was he hated it technically, but, you know, he liked my, he thought I was musical and we got along personally. So he put up with me and uh, it took him three years to convince me to use the American embouchure and reeds, but um, I've never regretted it because, uh, you know, it's just, it's a very wonderful, sophisticated technique. And uh, I think it's very good with the oboe being an individual instrument at, at best. Not every second, but uh, since it's so individual, it can be so many different ways. It's good to have different influences in the sense that's how you become yourself more. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Well, we did actually a call for questions on all of our social media to see what our listeners yeah. wanted to ask you, and we got a ton right. of questions. So, right. yeah, I thought we could just all maybe right. dive right in. Um Rushi would like to know what it was like to go from an American school of oboe playing to a German school and kind of switching between those two different modes. Well, first of all, I started out American totally because uh, Anton Maley, I mentioned, was uh, was Bloom's second oboe. And he taught me the same things that Bloom made me, Mr. Bloom made me go back to. So I, I had that, and then when I went to study with Joseph Marx, I used to talk a little bit about him because he was a very much an iconoclast. He hated the idea that American oboe playing, everyone was starting to sound exactly the same. And he used to call them the dark tone boys. And his whole idea was to be individual, and he had a very bright sound. And the whole thing with him was, you should be individual, you know. Or, you know, should really be individual. And then when I went from him to Divergy, uh, who I hadn't spoken much about ever, I said within three years, and it was all etudes again, I don't even talk that much about sound or school. And when I went, um, uh, I guess I was still trying to make reads like Mr. Uh, Mr. Maley taught me in high school, because none of my teachers really did much with reads with me except my first teacher. And uh, I wish they had in a way, but they didn't. And... Um, uh, and so when I went to Germany, it wasn't exactly coming from an American school anymore because I had been studying with, you know, four years of French teachers. Not mm-hmm. that I was exactly a French. I don't know what I sounded like in those days. Probably brighter than now. But so it wasn't. It was just. I tried to do it in each case. These are all teachers I wanted to study with. So I tried to adapt. I tried to adapt to uh, and change according to what I was told to do. The only thing is, by the time I studied with Mr. Bloom, I was already 23, and I was a little bit set in my ideas. So, but he knew how to deal with me, and um, he made me he made me change, and I was happy to, and I'm glad I did. You know, that playing on the tip of the reed and all that stuff—that's it's uh-huh. common, you know, common knowledge here. 
uh, I, I'm glad to have come back to that, even though I also started that way. So uh, it's, it's good to have different teachers. You have to be lucky that it's the right sequence. And then you also, when you're a student, you don't realize it, but most of your life, you're not a student anymore. So even if I was 26 already, which is people study even older than that, or 25, I was, I, I was off on my own in California, and I had no one take, telling me much, a conductor here and there, but I had a chance to kind of put it all together my own way, uh, you know, just as I think people do when, they're, when they get into their late 20s, no matter what, they should be improving mm-hmm. and refining things, and, and later than that, too. So um, I don't ask you a question how it was. It it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> this next question comes from somebody you know, friend of the podcast, Claire Brazil. Uh, yeah, you know her. <laughs> Um, and she has two questions. She would like us to ask about uh, your studies in Berlin as a Fulbright Fellow and what it was like to sub with the Berlin Philharmonic. Um, and also, she would like to know which is your favorite Bach cantata. Oh boy, that's a lot. I should just call her up and tell her. But I'll, <laughs> I'll just think. okay, what was it like? Okay, the favorite Bach cantata is going to be a hard one because. Um, that's my, uh, it's almost kind of my religion now, is Bach cantatas and Bach in general. And especially that I'm um, kind of retired, and I guess I'm retired from professional playing. I had a gig in the last summer, a good gig in the Music Northwest, but, you know, I'm happy to be retired because I've had so much, such a, so I was so busy for so long. So anyway, to answer uh, that other question, which was, what was like in Berlin? Well, the very, there's one very funny story. It's, 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 uh, I had a one really hard problem there, and I'll tell you, it's a, very, it's a funny story. Um, I guess it was uh, my first year there, so I was, I was about 21. I'd only played in the Harvard Radcliffe Orchestra. I was lucky to get in it. In it, I, you know, it, I was finally first over my last senior year, finally in the college orchestra, and suddenly um, I got this call from my teacher said, Alan. Uh, some recording Mozart symphony. Um, somebody got sick, and the concert says we need four oboes. It's an emergency. We need you to come down, comb your hair, and come down and, and, and record with us. <laughs> so I said, "Wow!" And I remember go, going down there and taking my oboe. And the orchestra had played with Symphony Number no. Thirty-One, the Paris Symphony, and the orchestra had played it. But I think I'd gone to the concert, but I, I never played. I'd never hardly played anything in those days. And um, I remember sitting in the in the uh, in the warm up room uh, with my teacher, and um, and uh, a colleague came over and he said, uh, "Your student, your young student there." And I, I was 21, but looked even younger, I think. Your, your student there, he's playing with us, but he looks so relaxed. Uh, and my teacher answered, "It was very prophetic." He says, "Yes, he's so relaxed because he does not because he is young." And does not yet know what can happen. Hmm. That's what he said. And then we went into the recording session, and we were, record, were playing the last movement of this Paris Symphony, which starts off um, with a very intricate first violin solo, section violin solo, and then a second one, second violin solo, and it's kind of intricate. And then the winds come in with this big chord, and then the thing repeats again with the first and second violins, and then the winds come in again. And so, what's happened in this recording session? 
is that the strings were actually having a problem. They, you know, they had played it. Carl Byrne was the conductor, but they were kind of messing it up. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, how music students can be a little, I wouldn't say arrogant, but, you know, I was a little saying, what's wrong with this orchestra? I thought it's supposed to be a good orchestra. I mean, can't they just play their parts? So finally, so finally they, they get it perfectly and it's a great thing in the air and the winds come in with this incredible chord. I'm playing fourth oboe, you know, far, far away from my teacher. Three other, uh, two other oboes are sitting between us. We play this big D major chord and then this, and I never heard a sound like that in my life or been in the middle of a sound like that for one harmonic wind section. And, um, then the strings play their thing again. I'm thrilled. I said, wow, fantastic. And I play my low D again, and it's all by myself. Because that's where Mozart has a deceptive cadence. Oh, and I wasn't God. counting. <laughs> this is where I learned to count. I <laughs> with this big, loud, enthusiastic low D, and everyone stops and looks around at the oboe section. And then, and this is, it's a humorous thing. I, I wasn't funny at the time, but, uh, Called him and said, which oboist was, did that? <laughs> and the other three guys all raised their hands. <gasps> so it was, it was a very funny moment. <laughs> and then the, this, is, this is the real funny moment. Uh, then I said in the break, I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And my German at the time, I said, I'm so sorry I did that. And he said, that was you? It was perfectly in tune. I thought it was the other guy. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, of course, he was kidding me. Everyone knew who it was. But it, 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 Bronson was 444. I have this old array, and I play a low D. <laughs> and I swear, I also recorded, a, I also record, recorded with him the Unfinished Symphony, and I swear I hear that flat low D in the middle of the whole orchestra. Oh, my when God. When the recording. So I, play, I, I played not a lot with them. But that was certainly experience, a big experience for a, you know, a guy in his early twenties. That's amazing. And um, <laughs> it was amazing. It's a good story, anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh, there was from from oh from Claire. What's my favorite Bach cantata? Oh yes. Well, at this moment, I listened to about three cantatas already today. I guess cantata one seventy. I have to say, Fugnuto Rue with the beautiful Obu de Moore, doubling the strings. Cantata 170. I don't know. There may, there's so many great. You know, Bach's brother was an oboist. I don't know if you knew that. Mm-hmm. Bach, 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 Bach had a brother three years older, and they were both orphaned early, so they were very close. And Bach's brother was an oboist, and, and there's more Bach arias for oboe than violin and flute ones put together. So, Is that why uh, you feel um, such a connection to Bach's music? Do you do you know why you feel so connected to it? Well, first of all, uh, a lot of people do. It's not just me. It's uh, right. I think, uh, well, from, I mean, I would say there's so many ways, ways to get connected to box music, especially, certainly as an oboist. I'll, I'll be lucky if I play even from the Rothwell book every thing for oboe that he wrote, even read it once, you know. But I would say for me, it's a kind of, um, even though uh, I'm not a Lutheran or I'm not Christian at all, I really strive to, uh, find meaning in all the, Cantatas. It's almost like I must think of like Bachianity. It's almost like a religion, that mm-hmm. a religion where things are first of all set to music, <laughs> like in no other religion. And in a certain sense, I feel that the essence of every religion is the same. I mean, in a certain sense, every religion is published 
is is practiced by millions of people. So you're going to have, you know, all kinds of varieties and qualities. But when it really comes down to it, you know, uh, kindness and generosity and all these things are found in every religion, sacrifice and discipline. And the thing about Bach is that he puts into music <laughs> like like you just could not say it in words. So mm-hmm. I'm using it as a um, a serious study uh, and looking for sort of, I, I say to myself, every single cantata applies to me. <laughs> and I found this one that said, it said, and so I gave a Bach class at CalArts, so I just got this paper and it said, she wrote on the, the title of the cantata, make sure that your so-called fear of God is not a lot of hypocrisy. Mm. So I said, gee, I have to figure out how to make that apply, you know. I'm sure I could do it. <laughs> but what does fear of God mean to me and what what... What am I being hypocritical about? But of course, there's a lot of things. That's a hard one. There are a lot of things that are much easier, like Thanksgiving. You know, things like the idea of the Thanksgiving and the way Bach puts it. And uh, so uh, it's a spiritual matter. Of course, it's a musical. You know, it's also the, there's so much great music. And I've had so much opportunity to play it, including cantatas and... I feel very very lucky in terms of playing a lot of Bach. Um, we have a question. Yes, it does. That was lovely. Um, we have a couple of questions um, from two different people that sort of touch on the same mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Sophie and Natalie would like to know how you move beyond just playing the notes and making the music, specifically in slow expressive solos like Shostakovich Symphony Number no. Five. And how do you do that and still um, stay connected to everyone else in the ensemble and don't go off, you know, on your own time? Well, that's a very that's a very big question. Certainly, well, certainly, if you're playing in a group, you're listening to everybody, and even though if you even the, and the more of course you're prepared, the more you're able to listen to everybody. Like I had a chance to to play the sub in the Boston Symphony. And uh, when I was I was tremendously pre- prepared, so I was able to listen to everybody very clearly. So that's that's how you play in time with people by listening to them. That there's that. And then the question is, how do you go beyond the notes into the music? Well, a lot of practicing is really about the notes. I think the oboe, let's face it, is awkward and it's difficult. I guess maybe the other instruments. Are too, but I'm not worrying about them. But you know, the oboe is kind of very awkward, and it's always it's great. It really keeps you humble. I think we oboists are a very humble group. You know, someone does that does us a favor. It's just, it's hard to do the simplest things well, just like just to begin a note, and then to begin a note well, which I guess has something to do with music, but every it's, it has a lot to do with technique. And so we spend a lot of I spend a lot of time on fundamentals. And then in terms of actually uh, learning about music, of course, listening to recordings and looking at scores. And I think then also singing music to oneself in one's own mind. And it happens spontaneously, but it's good to look at at the score, not that we do it enough or that I do it enough. But, um, of course, one doesn't want to just music isn't notes. Uh, and one has to play the notes as close to beautifully as one can, and as close to perfectly as one can. But I guess that's, of course, not enough. And one has to uh, kind of study, try to understand the music, understand the composers, uh, 
there are a lot of them, and some of them we don't know. But um, I think we should make it our business to, you know, try to be, be you know, we're craftsmen, but we're, we're also hopefully artists too. And uh, a lot of these people who are great geniuses like Bach and like Beethoven depend on our understanding of them so that other people can understand them too. So we have a lot of responsibility, and especially as, as an oboist, we're, in a way, leaders in an orchestra of expressiveness particularly. And uh, we owe it to our orchestra. We think of all these violinists who have to play everything they play is in unison with, uh, you know, 12 other people and how, how technically, uh, in a way, dry compared to what we do is, I think. Um, but so we have, a, we have to sing for them, too. <laughs> you know, sing for all the strings, and we have to kind of inspire the orchestra. And to do so, we have to be really technically prepared, really hard workers, and work in a variety of ways technically and also try to go beyond the notes while playing them well. Mm-hmm. I guess we all know that, right? <laughs> Easier said than done, maybe. <laughs> well, easy to say. Easy to say. I find my I find myself what's interesting too in my own in this new phase of my career, which is end it being over, um, which I'm you know, I'm perfectly fine because everything in Los Angeles and every thing you note know, you play involves miles of driving. You know, and uh, I have so much more time just not to, just to, even to practice. But I find myself getting more involved in the fundamentals as if I was studying with Gilet again and the Vergy and not not having to learn notes all the time. And, of course, I play what I practice with my students are playing so I could demonstrate. But, um, I don't know, I like, I like the fundamentals of the oboe. I guess we oboes are a certain type. We don't take no for an answer. We're mm-hmm. kind of stubborn. We need someone to fight with, get out of our system. And the oboe provides, provides that so we can get along with our friends and be nice people. Get the stubbornness out of our system. <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> True. Because I see this. I see those same types in my students. You're like, oh, boy, there we are again. <laughs> yes, objectively, as a bassoonist, I have to say I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've known some pretty oddball things too. <laughs> Press company excluded, of course. Of course. Of oh course. yes. Well, I don't. I don't know. I don't know Jackie. I can say. Um, we got a really interesting question from Becca. Yes. Um, she yes. wants to know where do you see classical music as a profession going in the future? And what are your thoughts on classical music staying relevant and sustainable for future generations? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm maybe not an expert in the first question. I mean, I think people have always been saying that the music is a bad profession. Even in the Quant's book on playing the flute in the 18th century, it starts out that music is uh it starts out saying music is, in a way, not the most practical profession. Therefore, you should really love it. So I don't know where it's going, but as far as Bakken's concerned, I think it's getting more and people are understanding it more and more. And I really think music is, is it could always do better, but I think it's, it's really, I think it's doing, I think it's doing all right. I have so many students who are making a living at it, including, you know, people just graduated and, you know, it's, it's difficult, but it's, I mean, every profession is difficult. It depends who you are and how hard you work and, 
But I don't, I don't, I don't think I have any. I think it's music is going to be the way it's always been. It's one of the main things in life. I think, uh, I think there seem to be orchestras and there seem to be a lot of recordings and it seems to be, in spite of people saying it's dying, they've always said it's dying. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it hasn't died. <laughs> so I, I mean, I'm, again, I'm not, no, I'm, I'm not looking for a job now, so it's hard to say, but I've had students just graduate and many of them in the last five, ten years, they seem to be doing fine. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm not really sure, but I don't know. I think uh first of all it's an art it's an art and even if it's even if you're not going to be a Wall Street broker and they're having trouble too probably you know it's art for art's sake and I remember when I was um in high school of music and art it was sort of the uh beatnik era the beginning of the pippy era sort of and our motto was art for art's sake and that means it's worth doing for its own sake and I remember here's a good quote from Mr. Diver, from Mr. Gillet he said, at one of our first lessons, he said, I'm not here to teach you how to play, but how to practice. And practicing is an art in itself. And I remember thinking, I said, this guy's smarter than all my, my Harvard professors. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that's one of the things, that's one of the things that has stuck with me. And it's sticking with me now. Because I, I, and I feel very, I feel really virtuous. I don't have to sound good. I just want to. Mm. <laughs> you know? I'm just kind of doing it for its own sake. It's one of the things I do, just like meditating and running and trying to play the piano. And it, but, it's, but before, of course, I had to do it a little harder <laughs> and drive to all the rehearsals. So I'm enjoying a little bit more ease in my life, let's say. I'd love to kind of um, break into the listener questions and ask you about something you just said. Um, we've had several mm-hmm. guests on the podcast talk about meditation and um how that relates to their musicianship mm. um is that mm-hmm. relationship true for you and if so um kind of can you describe that to us well well first of all I, I would say it's definitely true i mean you can't say definitely because i've done it every day for say 40 or more years so wow. if i hadn't done it i couldn't say I, I mean it's very hard to say but i've done it because it's my nature to do it Mm-hmm. And I've always been into it. And I remember the very first thing, by the way, I remember when I was just beginning oboe, so when I was 15, finally, I spoke to my parents that I wasn't going to be playing that new piano they bought for me. <laughs> it didn't turn out to be new. It turned out to be from the 20s. <laughs> but it's still a good piano. That's what makes it such a good piano. I still have it. I still play, try to play Bach every day on it. So, well... Uh, as far as meditation is concerned, I've gone through many different phases of it. That is to say, with transcendental meditation. And from the, oh yes, I was about to say, I had on my music, little music, little read table in my bedroom, which I stayed with, shared with my grandma. I had a quote, it turned out from the Bhagavad Gita, which is an ancient Indian scripture. And basically it said, you don't have a right to the fruits of the work, but to the work only. It's basically saying it's an art in itself. Don't, don't practice because you want to get something. Practice because it's worth doing for its own sake. Mm-hmm. And so that was that my first so thing. Yes. And I, I, I read, I still read it because I still read that stuff. And I said, oh, there it is. Different translation. But, uh, and that's what I'm doing now. And I feel, you know, good. And, uh, that basically I did it through all through college. I didn't know, I didn't realize I was going to be an oboist. I was trying to fight it, <laughs> but I wasn't able to. And uh, so as far as the meditation is concerned, 
I mean, I started out with transcendental meditation. Um, I, I had a guru from India, and I went to India for a month at one point. I, when I was at Yale, there was a wonderful Buddhist. I sort of drifted from Hinduism to Buddhism, which is that that all of that difference, more different style than a different essence. And uh, right now, though, I I just to be very uh, specific because um, I'm going to be te- teaching a little class in a, for a couple of weeks at CalArts. My particular meditation is based on sound, and it's nothing I made up myself, but it's actually the sound of the breath, and which can be you can you know you can breathe very different ways, just like playing a loud or soft note on the open. You can, you can make a loud breath, and you could make a silent breath. And I would tell, I leave you with a final question because I, I would say when your breath is completely silent, and what else do you hear in your mind? And that sound for me is a um, big thing. So I meditate on, you know, and I, there's a call, so it's a, it's a kind of traditional uh, Buddhist meditation called on complete mindfulness of breathing. Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a, a Vietnamese Buddhist monk, has written a lot. And it's a kind of very theoretically 2,500 years old meditation technique just on your breathing, thinking of your feelings, your body, your other aspects of reality, your mind. So I just do that every day. And um, I try, you try to be mindful, you know, I could, and you try to be kind and generous. And these are, I think, things that are in every religion. But I find, um, I think, I think, uh, Meditation, especially on sound, and these things are very akin to musical musicians in general. Did you find any relationship between meditation and performance anxiety? Well, I never had that much performance anxiety, which might be because I'm meditating. I think I'm fairly high strung. I mean, my my parents are both quite high strung, and I remember being very high strung in college and I think my wife would think I'm still high strong. <laughs> I mean I'm a New Yorker. I'm still, I'm still pro- I mean I'm no one to judge. I think I'm pretty high strong in a way. I'm very energetic. I drink a lot of coffee. Um by the way I I got to be friends with Mark Lifty's widow and she said he 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 became a coffee, total coffee fanatic. He said a, a perfect cup of coffee was more important to him than a perfect read. Oh my God. That is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and she said then when he retired, not only did he put it over in his case, but he forgot where he put it. Oh, my God. <laughs> but I, I, have, I haven't felt in that success. But I spoke to my friend Basil, who's the same age as I am. I just spoke to him yesterday. And he's still playing Bach in Minneapolis. He used to be in the Minneapolis Orchestra, and he played up in the New, ha- in the New England Bach Festival. So he's cooking with gas, playing. So takes all kinds. I love it. But I would say, I mean, I was, it's hard to say, I mean, I think something like meditation would in general help with performance anxiety. Mm-hmm. It helps with uh, just wisdom and I think you, you, you get over, you know, not, not to be fearful, not to be mm-hmm. fearful. And uh, I was just reading today, it was the same vlog, I guess it was in the Dhammapada, it was another, the Buddhist book that said, don't be afraid of what you shouldn't be afraid of and be afraid of what you should be afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, you know, just having, having perspective. Right. And I think certainly meditation gives you a kind of perspective because 
if you shut your stupid mind off for a few seconds at a time, mm-hmm. which is a great pleasure. And uh, it, it, uh, after a year, after decades and decades of doing it, I would still recommend it. I love it. And it was funny. And, and yeah, Cal Arts, because see, we have this thing called interim, which is basically a two-week semester. And uh, you do, it, it's because they, they, some of them realize, oh, the spring semester is 17 weeks and the fall semester is 15 weeks. What do we do about it? So they said, oh, we'll have a special two-week semester. And you can kind of teach something, not that you would, something not that you would normally do. So I, I one year I did, I think two or three years ago, I, I gave a class called Bach. Uh, you know, I called it Meditations for Musicians. And so many people signed up for the class. It came, that was like, it was like claustrophobic. It was claustrophobic. So this year I changed it, the title to Mis- Meditation for Musicians and Bach Lovers. <laughs> So it'll, I don't know, maybe it'll cut down, I don't know if it'll cut down the number of students, I don't know, if the room's big enough. But it's a, <laughs> I want to get some people from the other, that's the reason I want also from the other schools, because I started teaching a Bach class and nine students, but five of them were like from the art school. Mm. And, uh, but some of them, they're good musicians too. You know, they happen to be, they have love music, so I want to make sure they could take it too. I don't want to call it just musicians, but but I think Bach is a totally universe there. We just we don't um, it's hard to appreciate it because it's so much. But I have this I have this uh, a list of quotes by different composers, Beethoven and Mozart and Brahms, and everyone has incredible things to say about Bach. Like Brahms said, "Study Bach, there you will find everything." Mm-hmm. And Mozart said, "There's a lot that last is someone I could learn from." And Beethoven said, you know, about the word Bach means brook, he said, it shouldn't be brook, his name should be ocean. <laughs> so there's a list, of, there's so many, uh, it's a question of each of us are limited by our own capacity to understand it. Also, the music takes repeated listens to appreciate, you know, most of it. So, uh, it's a whole world. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and there's meditation things in Bach too, of course. Our last question um, comes from a listener who wants to know how you keep practicing fun and fresh over the course of a long career. Well, okay, I have well, um, and as to say, I have this whole practice. I practice fundamentals for a half hour, pretty much on the clock for every morning for start. For start, I ha- I'm in a different key each week. I have a different way to practice my exercises. It's a kind of whole, it's almost like my meditation uh, thing, where it's kind of very spelled out, what I would do during that fast half, first half hour. And then the second half hour, I, I don't practice enough right now. I only practice an hour and a half because I'm not professional anymore. It wasn't easy to get much more when I had a drive to rehearsals either, so I have no excuse now. But uh, mm-hmm. um, I would say uh, I, I try to do music second. Not, I like the fundamentals first. And again, I have a whole ritualistic thing. So much as if I have to make myself practice, stop practicing after a half hour because I should do music. And music, I just right now, uh, it was, it's different now because I just used to have to practice music for that evening's rehearsal or that next one's concerto. It was obvious what I had to practice. Now I can sort of practice whatever I want. So I play one of the concertos my students are playing and I play Bach. I play music I really like, and I'm a little spontaneous there since I don't have to practice anything in particular. 
So that's fresh because it's, it's a lot of great music. And then it's for, and then my third half hour, it's not enough for a student, <laughs> but it's etudes. And I like practicing, you know, between that and Fairling. I said my students were playing. A Fairling I could play every day, just like a well-tempered clavier. In fact, I arranged the well, the Fairling etudes, C major, C minor, C sharp major, D flat minor. <laughs> You know, the, in that order of the well-tempered clavier, not the circle of fifths. So I keep up with my, like I'm in the key of B this week. So, oh, I, well, Monday, what do I do? Like, oh, I'll do these exercises with C and it's Monday. <laughs> and I'll also do the fail in, in B major and B minor and they have, they're together on the same page. So I don't know, I just find my way. It's like when, when Dile said it's an art in itself. For me, there's two or, or, uh, or oh, when they said that in, in, uh, Bahagwa Gita or in the high school, it's worth doing for its own sake. That's one aspect that it's, it's worth doing for its own sake. Art in a way is, is the highest human endeavor with the exception maybe of spirituality or being a farmer or something like that. But it's a high, very high human endeavor. And, and the other thing about it is it should be individual. You should find a way to practice that you do like because you do have to do your whole life. And uh, Bach, there's a great quote of Bach where he said, "I've had to, I've been obliged to work." And say it turns out, I've had to work, and anybody who works as hard as I have will do just as well. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of wisdom in there. So in a certain sense, he figured out a way that suited him, where he could work well. He knew how when to switch gears, you know. So you have to find a way that suits you. And I would say, I have in my own case. So that's how I've kept it interesting my whole life. Of course, when I had, a, had to practice because I didn't want to screw up, that kept it, that was interesting too. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> fear, you know, but, uh, or, or if you say, I'm going to travel, I'm, gonna, I'm traveling a thousand miles to play this concerto. I don't want to stop, dr- travel a thousand miles and play in a mediocre way, you know. Mm-hmm. If I'm going all the way to Europe or Japan, I want to play well when I get there. That's another mm-hmm. motivation. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think it's uh, one should think of practicing as an art that's worthwhile doing for its own sake. And of course, you need to do it for, the, for your concerts for the sake of your poor audiences and uh, colleagues. So you're practicing for other people, even though you don't realize it. But you are, because all these people are going to hear you. And they may not know why they enjoy it, but if the intervals are clean and it's in tune and it's, the register changes are not clumsy and all these other things, it can be beautiful. And uh, I'm sure Bob Bach wouldn't like to hear you play their solos or Beethoven screwing all the B to C sharps, et cetera. And uh, so we do, we're doing it, even if we don't realize it, we're doing it as, as our work for humanity. I remember, when, I remember when I was going to, when I went to India, I told you I went to India once uh, uh, to be on a meditation retreat. And uh, I remember one of the jobs I had, because they emphasized service, and one of the jobs I had was, or one of the last days I had this bowl of punch or of some kind of vegetable drink, and there was a line of people, and my job was to take a ladle and pour it into the glass and give it to them and greet them. And, and it was a beautiful thing. And then we had this. And a couple of days later, as I was on an airplane, and the flight attendant came over with the same thing with a glass of orange juice. Would you like this, sir? You know. And I said, Well, this is the same thing that I was doing. It was a part of this religious retreat uh, as a service to humanity. But now this woman's doing it. She's doing it for her money. She has seen to earn her living. But 
in a way, she's in a way doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what we're doing too, and it helps us to realize it. Because if we don't realize it, we're cheating ourselves. You know, if you think you're only doing it for the money, or you're only doing that out of fear, or you know, you're doing it as your service to humanity in a way. So my question for you is, what would you say to a younger version of yourself? Oh my, that's a good question. <laughs> it's not a very fair question. Well, someone was just, I was in the car with my friend over for Thanksgiving dinner who's about younger than I'm actually, and she says, hey, do you have any regrets? So the way she put it. Say, so don't be stupid. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, let's see. Boy, I, may, I, may, I may not be able to answer that. What would I ask? ask? Or we could do um, like a, a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours. Mm-hmm. If that's... Oh, okay. Well, I would say uh, <laughs> I'm sure they're practicing hard already. I mean, a lot of we oboes work hard in general. Just love what you're doing. Love the oboe. Uh, listen a lot to other people. Feel appreciate being lucky. I mean, it seems to work out the ways that they do. You see, there's no. That's what I was thinking of. Uh, I was reading in a Buddhist book of mine. Uh, it is Thai Buddhism. My son investigating that because thinking. They have the best food. Maybe they have the best Buddhism too, because uh, Buddhism changes from one country to the next. And I, I got this—I got this one guy who's kind of rough. I think he's from 50 years ago. He was a famous guru there 50 years ago, so it's in translation. But he has this—he's this dictionary, and he says, "You know, sawdust brains and stupid people think they would define God as some guy by sitting up in the clouds or whatever." But but my definition is the natural order of things. And uh, that ring rings true to me in the sense that, you know, things develop as they should. I mean, I thought I was going to be an English major up to my senior year. There was a certain grant that I was expecting to win because I was A's and B's and everyone got it. And I didn't get it. And I said to my, went to my advisor and I said, how come I didn't get this? And he said, well, because I wrote your recommendation that going to graduate school in English would be the worst possible thing for you. <laughs> Because he felt by then that I was a total musician, even though I didn't realize it myself. So, in a way, I, I could have said, oh, I mean, I could say I wish I'd been at least an, a music major at Harvard and not an English major. Because I, I hardly ever read anything. I mean, I certainly, I forgot every, the whole thing, my whole education. <laughs> I mean, uh, so, I know, and if I had to say one thing, I, maybe I should have been a music major. On the other hand, I might not have good grade, good got good grades and I might not have won the Fulbright, you know, which might have been because of that. Who knows? So it's very hard to second guess yourself. You, you, you're, what I think, it's like if you, if you got two flowers in the farmer's market and one was a tulip and one was a rose or two, uh, they look, the, the bug, the buds look similar. Nevertheless, when they open up, that one, the rose is going to open up and be a rose and the bud and the tulip is going to be a tulip. So every human being, in a certain sense, opens up into who they're going to be. Of course, you have choices, but your choices are also dependent on who you are and what your nature is. So um, I don't know if there's a way to second-guess yourself. I mean, I don't, I don't really know what I would say. <laughs> that's beautiful. So I don't know yeah, I that's beautiful. Think. I love that so much. Oh. <laughs> Good. Well, they answered your question. Good. 
Um, for our last question, could you tell us about a favorite memory you have of a past performance? Well, I think my favorite memory in a way was times when I played the Mozart concerto and nervous before the concert, as anyone would, because I played from memory, which is really beyond my talent level. (laughs) I I did it just because my teacher did. He could play the piano part from memory, too, but, you know, we won't talk about that. (laughs) So, But I remember my favorite moment is coming on stage and feeling the the, um, orchestra start up with that bum, bum, and feeling just feeling confident, just like the spirit, when you think of the spirit of that introduction, it's almost as if it's written to make the oboist not nervous. And because maybe Mozart knew what we oboists were like. <laughs> we knew we had to be more, we, we knew we had to be more aperto, more open. And, uh, so when you get there and you're sitting, stand, you're standing out there and you hear that going on behind you, it makes you feel ready, it makes you ready to play the piece. So the times I've, every time I've played that piece, I've had that experience of being nervous ahead of time, but once the music starts, feeling exhilarated and feeling the strength of it. So that's, I guess that's, that's what comes to mind. That's gorgeous. Alan Vogel, thank you so much for appearing on Double Read Dish. It was such a joy to talk to you. <laughs> well, thank you, Galita. It was my pleasure. You were a wonderful interviewer, and I am sure Jackie got the sound perfectly well. thank you so much yeah thank you thank you We hope you enjoyed that interview with Alan Vogel. Don't forget to check us out on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can listen to us on SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, and Google Play. And don't forget to tune in for our first episode of 2018 featuring interview with bassoonist Rebecca Heller.